I'd like to let you know that Aussie Meded is sponsored by OPC Health, an Australian supplier of prosthetics, orthotics, clinic equipment, compression garments, rehabilitation devices for doctors, physiotherapists, orthotists, podiatrists and hand therapists. If you'd like to know what OPC Health offers, visit opchealth.com.au and view their range online. A common answer which most of our interviewees give when asked about what's going to influence their practice in the future and what the future holds for their area of medicine is the use of artificial intelligence. What actually is this artificial intelligence though? When is it coming? Do we need to know how to program to use it? How is it going to influence our practice? Well, today we're going to learn a bit more about artificial intelligence and machine learning. Good day and welcome to Aussie Med Ed, the Australian medical education podcast, a program born during COVID times to emulate that general chit-chat and banter around the hospital with the idea of educating the medical student and GP alike. I'm Gavin Nyman, an orthopaedic surgeon based in Adelaide, and it's my pleasure to bring Aussie Med Ed to you. And today we're lucky enough to be joined by two doctors, Dr. Stephen Backey and Dr. Josh Gabor, both of which have used artificial intelligence in producing their PhD. They're going to explain about how they've utilised it in their research and how it actually has a role to play in our practice as well. They're going to go through the process of what artificial intelligence actually involves and how it can be utilised in research for the future. And they'll explain how this important process will influence medical practice for the future. I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast has been produced, the Ghana people and pay my respect to the elders both past, present and emerging. Well, today we're going to hear from Dr. Stephen Backey and Dr. Josh Gavore about artificial intelligence and machine learning. First is Stephen Backey, a neurology registrar at Flinders Medical Centre with an interest in medical research and education. He's recently been awarded a PhD for his research in stroke and general medicine. He's joined by Josh Gavore, an intern at the Royal Aid Hospital with interest in general surgery, and he's also completing a PhD thesis looking at recovery after general surgery. The enthusiasm has reached out to the junior doctors in the establishment of a journal club which actually fosters and develops other research projects utilising such techniques. Both Steve Backey and Josh Gabor, welcome to Aussie Med Ed. Thank you very much, Gavin. It's great to be on the show. Well, look, I'd like to start off by asking you, both of you uh, how you actually got into machine learning and artificial intelligence. Perhaps we'll start off with Steve first of all. What got you into artificial intelligence? I've always been really interested in medical research because I think it's one of the ways that we can really contribute to improving patient care on a very large scale. And when I was in my later years of medical school, I was doing medical statistics and I got interested in how far you can use statistics in different ways. And that led to machine learning. And then through a variety of self-directed learning and online courses, started to develop some skills in the area and started to try and apply it to research questions and really working towards bringing those research questions closer to influencing practice. And so you've actually done a fair bit of research with it. You're using it for your PhD, I believe, or in other areas? Yeah, that's right. So my PhD was looking at the prediction of inpatient outcomes in stroke and general medicine. So a lot of what we've been doing is trying to look at discharge planning, discharge planning being very important. And I think anyone who's ever tried to put an estimated discharge date on a patient with multiple comorbidities knows how challenging it can be to be accurate. I thought machine learning might be able to help with this task. So we looked at things in terms of length of stay prediction, discharge destination prediction, functionality at the time of discharge to see if we can help really estimate when people will go home to really help with bed flow in a data-driven fashion. And we proved moderately successful. I think that, you know, there are some things that are just always going to be hard to predict, but we get closer and closer to making accurate predictions and Sometimes you can make predictions that even if they're not 100% accurate, can still be fairly useful. But there's a variety of other outcomes that we've been looking at trying to predict. So we've been doing some work around penicillin allergies 
the immunology and clinical pharmacology groups. That's been really exciting. It's been looking at interpreting how allergies and adverse drug reactions that are not allergic, such as intolerances, are described in the electronic medical record and seeing if we can use natural language processing, subset of machine learning, an application of machine learning, to see if we can help categorize these into a way that can help the immunology service go around and de-label some penicillin allergies because many people who have a penicillin allergy are in fact not allergic to penicillin and if they've got that label it's associated with a variety of worsened outcomes around length of stay, more second-line antibiotics and Clostridium difficile infections. So there's a few of the applications that we've been working on. Yeah, it's good to hear the application of artificial intelligence into research can vary from different areas. I believe, Josh, you've also done the work in artificial intelligence and you've utilised it in your research. Can you tell me a bit more about it, please, and how you got involved in it? My interactions with Steve has really shown me how machine learning can be used within clinical practice and can really be used to enhance the efficiency and overall quality of care that we potentially can give patients. My background in research really stems from my time in the second half of medical school, where as I was learning more and more and getting more experience within hospital, I really sought to try and identify areas that could potentially be improved in some form in the clinical arena. Throughout, especially my honours year and now going into my PhD, my focus has really been on looking at recovery after surgery and more specifically general surgery. And within that, we're not only looking for associations um, with things or patient or system factors that could potentially improve patient outcomes, but we're also looking at things that could improve efficiency of delivery of care. And that's one particular aspect of Steve just alluded to, especially in the post-operative recovery sense and discharge planning, where machine learning and artificial intelligence as a whole can be implemented. So at this stage, especially in my PhD work, my collaboration with Steve has been using artificial intelligence in post-operative recovery to try and enhance the care that we give these patients. Well, that's excellent. And look, how did you guys meet? Did you meet through the journal club or was it through working on the same unit together at some stage? Really, we just shared common research interests and that we were both at the Royal Adelaide Hospital at the time. So just through shared connections, you know, you become aware of another person's research and you reach out to them and say, you know, read your article on your surgical outcomes and how it's been modified in the setting of COVID, presenting a unique challenge. I found that article really interesting and insightful would you be free to have a chat about it and then you just have a chat about the research that people have done before and learn the sorts of methods they're doing the types of questions they're trying to answer and what their plans are in the future and well, i mean share goals and really trying to work towards improving healthcare efficiency and outcomes and just collaborating on multiple projects from there that's brilliant. It's really good to hear that. Working together and collaborative is actually what this whole podcast series is about too, is about creating networks and understanding what other people do. So it's good to hear. It's great to have you on board on this Aussie Med Ed today. I was just going to say as well that I think that what you're doing with the medical education podcast is fascinating because it's through collaborating with people with diverse ideas, diverse skill sets and diverse interests that really you come up with unique perspectives and I think that this platform really creates a unique opportunity for people to learn about the work of people they may not otherwise interact with. I think it's phenomenal work. Yeah, I really enjoy doing the podcasts. I get a lot out of it, learning about what other people do. 
learning about their experiences and their area of interest, and hopefully the listener does too. Certainly, this artificial intelligence though, machine learning really has got me interested, and I'm looking forward to hearing more about it today. So thank you very much for coming on board. When you look into artificial intelligence, I initially thought of things like you see in the movies and Terminator, but when you really learn more about it, it's actually obviously things that are all around us with Google photographs and with the car, which suddenly stops when you're driving. Is it just another form of statistics, or is it actually a little bit more to it? Perhaps, Steve, you can enlighten us on a little bit more about what artificial intelligence actually involves and how do you conceptualise it? The way that this is traditionally conceptualised is in a Venn diagram. So if you think of artificial intelligence as the broad, overarching concept, really that's just machines emulating human cognition in any broad sense. So that, that can include things like the Terminator. Then machine learning is a subset of artificial intelligence. And machine learning can be thought of as machines that are able to derive information from patterns to improve at tasks or learn, as it were, without having been explicitly told how to do so. So to kind of provide a practical example of that, say with your car example, so you could program a car or a distance sensor in a car to say, when you see something less than five metres from you, you should stop. And you've told the car that when it sees something that's five metres away, it should stop. Conversely, you could give a car a data set and say, you know, here's a data set of you know, the, the distance that the car has seen, how far away it is from objects and the rate at which those objects were moving. And you can see when the car slowed down and when it stopped. So in a machine learning example, rather than saying when it's five metres away, stop, you give it this data set and then the machine's able to look at the patterns that have gone before and say, well, you know, I can work out roughly when the car's meant to slow down and when it's meant to stop. So it can then emulate that moving forwards. And then deep learning is another key term in this area. So deep learning is a subset within machine learning. It's a type of machine learning that employs artificial neural networks. And artificial neural networks are really algorithms that are structured based upon human neurons, which I obviously have a biased interest in as a neurology trainee. I think they're great. But if you think about neuron, you've got your dendrites and they connect to the cell body or soma, and then you've got your axon going off to somewhere else. Really, these artificial neural networks are composed of multiple neurons, as it were, otherwise known as perceptrons. So you've got a series of inputs, and then they're connected by a series of weights to a, a central body, as it were. Then you get a kind of summation of the weights there and through an activation function. It then determines whether a signal is sent on through the axon, as it were, through to the next neuron. And then you can apply a variety of things in terms of different weights, different activation functions. And ultimately, when it, that signal gets to the end, you get an output. And then you can compare that output to, say, a gold standard, which we can talk about afterwards, that your gold standard is really important. You need to have a rock-solid gold standard or the computer might be learning the wrong thing. And then it can compare how close it got with its prediction. And then it can make a, you know, a cost function calculation, say you, know, you missed it by this much. And then it uses that information to update the parts of that neuron so that it's more accurate next time when the next example comes along. And that can kind of strengthen the right connections in the nervous system. We refer to you know, neurons that fire together, wire together, um, somewhat similar in these artificial neural networks. So what you're really saying is artificial intelligent program tends to monitor what's actually happening and adjust itself to actually learn from experiences in a circular fashion. Has it really just been the software that's actually made the real inroads in this area or is it relied on hardware as well? 
Yeah, the the hardware is certainly very important. So the kind of hardware that you require for a machine learning task or artificial intelligence task really depends on that task itself. So, for example, if someone wants to get started doing machine learning, there's many, many open source data sets where you can have a go. And this is data that people have made publicly available, and you can really actually have a look through a variety of programs, either using programming itself, like actually writing code, or you can use low-code or no-code platforms. For example, there's one from Google, there's one from Apple, Create ML and Auto ML and Teachable Machines, another one. Um, these, some of these are open source, some of these are paid services, but uh, we don't receive any remuneration from any of them. You can use these open source data sets to really have a go, and some of them are relatively small. So, for example, some open open source data sets have, say, house prices. So you'll have a variety of inputs, like you know, distance from the city, number of bathrooms, number of bedrooms, and then the house price. And you can have a go at you know, making some algorithms around that. And those are relatively small data sets, typically. You can do those just with any old computer, really. Um, home laptop would be able to do that just fine normally. And then there's some larger data sets. For example, there's one looking at the classification of flowers. Some of those data sets are a bit larger, but again, you can still primarily run them on really any home computer. It just takes a bit longer than on a supercomputer or something like that. Now, some of those data sets are a bit bigger. Some of those may not be able to run on yeah, you know, an old laptop, but most modern laptops that are reasonably powerful can do it if you leave them long enough. So what you're really saying is anyone with a home computer and an inclination to learn artificial intelligent programming can have a go and they can download data sets from the internet and use different programs to do so. It's a lot more than just basic statistics, though, I understand. Obviously, when I learned through statistics, we learned the basics of chi-squares and t-tests and things, and we used to use separate software for that. But nowadays, there's specialized software, and we're talking previously about uh, beginning-type software such as R, which is a free download software which can help you learn this. And I believe there's another program called Python. Are they the main things? Or well, you did mention other automatic ones such as CreateML prior. How did you get about it, and how would you start off doing so? Yeah, so... I think there's two ways to approach this if someone's really interested in the area. So conventionally, when I speak to medical students or doctors who are interested in getting involved, I suggest a pathway similar to the one that I took, which is, you know, medical statistics are a superpower in their own right. Josh and I are biased. We both think medical research is a fantastic thing to do. Being able to do your own statistics really helps you understand other people's articles and helps you write your own articles. And as you mentioned, there's programs like SPSS, Starter. You know, these are good programs. And then you can transition from those to a programming language like R. In R, you can conduct you know, all your regular medical statistics, your unpaired t-test, your chi-squared, multivariable logistic regression. And then within R, you can then install additional packages. Some of those are XGBoost, Random Forest, Neural Nets, Carrot. And these can then be used to transition that R skill that you've already developed in statistics to machine learning. And then from there, there's other languages. So Python is another programming language, and it's probably the most other, the most commonly used other language in the machine learning field. And then within Python, you have a variety of packages or libraries like Theano, TensorFlow, PyTorch, Keras, Scikit-learn, SciPy. They all have relatively non-intuitive names, really. You just have to 
work your way through the forums and online courses to be able to make heads or tails of those sometimes. There is an alternative pathway. And the alternative pathway is not one that existed when I started in this field, and that is the low-code or no-code pathway. So really, if you want to jump straight in at the machine learning end, there are these services now available whereby people can develop machine learning algorithms with either no code or very little code. Those ones are, I mean, they're relatively new and they're constantly improving. And there are some of those, like Apple has one called Create ML and Google has one called AutoML and Teachable Machine. There are many others as well, like Make ML, Big ML, obviously AI. Normally they have AI or ML in the name. And really, if someone wants to have a play, they could actually go straight to one of those. The only proviso is that you need to have a data set that you can use on that sort of platform. And that's where some of your publicly available data sets might be a place. Excellent. I believe also you can obtain data from the internet as well. So for publicly available data, you can use different programs that can actually capture that data and incorporate it into the programs. I believe it's known as data mining. Is that correct? Yes, yeah, so data mining is closely related to machine learning in that to do machine learning, you need data sets. And some of those data sets you can collect from online in a approved fashion. So there are methods to mine data from, for example, when people have previously mined housing websites to form data sets of house prices and the characteristics of the houses that were included on those websites to develop those data sets. And there are some, some publicly available data sets as well that people have previously collected. So, for example, I think there's one that comprises a significant portion of Wikipedia and there's also one that comprises a significant portion of Shakespeare if you want to teach a computer to write similarly to Shakespeare. Where does the census come into this at all? Can you access the census data as well or is that something that's kept apart and something that we can't actually utilise when doing research? I've never tried to access the census data myself. And the Australian Bureau of Statistics does have some really good data available, but I've never tried to access the census. And I guess that that does relate to a significant issue, which is, you know, when you're collecting data and you're storing data, you have to be very, very strict and very cautious in terms of how you collect it and making sure that it's all in an approved fashion and that it's all stored securely because particularly given we work in a medical field in terms of how data is collected to make sure it's all in an approved manner. Of course, privacy and ethics approval for any research is of utmost importance. Moving on to these other programs we are talking about before, R and Python and these other auto machine learning programs, do you need a specific operating system for this or can it run on any operating system? Yeah, so it really depends on the task that you're trying to perform. So broadly, in terms of operating systems, you know, operating systems, you've got Mac OS, you've got Windows, you've got Linux. Really, you can run analyses within any of those um, as long as you've got the right programming languages and libraries installed and IDEs or integrated developer environments. And there's many of those as well, like Visual Studio Code, Spider, PyCharm. But the computer, the aspect of the computer that really dictates what sort of program you can run is often more the hardware than the operating system. But to answer your question, most modern laptops can run machine learning and they can all run some sort of machine learning analysis and they can operate reasonably effectively with even moderate sized data, reasonably sized models. The 
caveat to that is that it just takes a bit longer. So sometimes, you know, for example, you, know, you make a make a program, you set it running, and then you go get lunch. You come back a couple of hours later, and it's finished. That's fine. And then sometimes with larger data sets, you'll set it running, you leave, and it's still running. Go make dinner, it's still running. Come back the next day, and it's still going. And it's going more in the day than you have to question whether it was the right analysis to run at times. But if you leave it running long enough and you don't exceed the computer's capacity, there's no reason that a, a modern laptop or modern desktop wouldn't be able to run very meaningful analyses. This sounds like it's something that will potentially be open to most of us as long as we've got the stamina and inclination to learn the, the process. What sort of data can be actually the, the machine learning be applied to? What, what sort of is it just numbers and review of figures, or is there other things things you can utilize it for? I'd like to let you know that Aussie Med Ed is supported by HealthShare. HealthShare is a digital health company that provides solutions for patients, GPs, and specialists across Australia. Two of HealthShare products are Better Consult, a pre-consultation questionnaire that allows GPs to know a patient's agenda before the consult begins as well as HealthShare's Specialist Referrals Directory, a specialist and allied health directory helping GPs find the right specialist. So that's one of the really exciting things about machine learning and the neural networks is that really if it's in a digital format and you have an appropriately clean data set, you can apply it to many different tasks. So the way that I conceptualise this, and it's reasonably described, most people would accept these definitions is you can kind of break it into three categories. You've got supervised, semi-supervised and unsupervised. And what that means is essentially you've got inputs and outputs. And in supervised tasks, you know what your inputs are, you know what your outputs are. In unsupervised, you only know your inputs. That's more like a clustering task. And semi-supervised is halfway in between. So when you're thinking of what sorts of data can be used as inputs, really it's anything that's in a digital format that you can get in a, a clean, standardized fashion. So you know, the easiest is, you know, discrete data fields. So most of my examples would probably be medical rather than house prices, given I don't know much about house prices. But, for example, age is a data field. Smoking, yes, no, is a data field. Systolic blood pressure is a number. Um, gender, you know, whether someone has hypertension, these are all discrete data fields. Those are very easy to use. But you can also use things that are, many other data formats. So for example, text, anytime you apply computers, say machine learning to human speech, it can be referred to as natural language processing or NLP. So text is just a subset of human speech. That is very much able to be used in these sorts of algorithms. So for example, some of our researchers looked at ward round note text and discharge summary text. You can also use images. So a classic example in medicine is photos of skin lesions and classifying them as likely to be benign or malignant. So those are, that's a classic example of images. Obviously, radiology lends itself to this as well. And that leads on well to the fact that you can use 2D images, but you can also use 3D data, just processing it slightly differently. And similarly, you can use video. So another example of this would be, say, colonoscopies. So People are using machine learning on colonoscopies to try and improve polyp detection rates or adenoma detection rates. And that's clearly being applied to a video. And theoretically, you can employ it on anything you can get in a digital format. So tactile feedback would be another one. And really, if you can get the data in the right format, you could potentially apply it to practically any kind of input. Excellent. 
And what's a medical task can use that data for then? Is it predominantly used as a diagnostic tool or can use it for other aspects to work out how you're going to treat a patient depending on what they recognise? So really it's any task that you think is going to be clinically significant. Now, these can have a variety of risk profiles associated with them. And ultimately, all of these things need to be proven in clinical trials before they're ready for use. But so if you take it from, say, least risky to most risky. So if you're just trying to categorize medical data, so say you're trying to group things together in an administrative sense, or you're trying to extract key performance indicators, that's reasonably low risk. A more risky task would be triaging. So that's not going to change who accesses services, but changes the order in which they'd access them. So there is a degree of risk there. And we have previously used machine learning to triage ophthalmology outpatient referrals and it performed reasonably well at that. Then more risky again, as you mentioned, is diagnostic tasks. Clearly, everyone who works in medicine knows how important a diagnosis is and the connotations of misdiagnosis. Clearly, if you're looking at a chest x-ray and the computer looks at the chest x-ray and says, I think this is a pneumonia, and it turns out actually it was a pneumothorax, that, that could have really significant implications. And then finally, there's therapeutic decisions and tasks. So, for example, should this person receive thrombolysis for their STEMI? Uh, should this person go and have an operation? You know, these, these sorts of decisions are very high stakes. And that's why people train for a very long time to make these decisions. And that's why whenever computers are getting close to this territory, we have to be very cognizant of their limitations and be very robust in our verification of their efficacy. Excellent. If I can ask Josh, what ways do you think like machine learning is relevant to medical students and doctors coming through the programs nowadays? So can, do you have any thoughts on it at all? Well, I just think that it provides a way where we can assess information more reliably. And what I mean by that is that in practice, we have to make many decisions throughout the day. I think that having machine learning alongside human decision-making can act in a way to enhance efficiency and overall sort of reliability um, of the decisions that we make. Um, what I see, especially for junior medical students getting involved with machine learning work, mainly in the research sense at this stage, I think it benefits them in that they can understand how it can actually improve efficiency. So, for example, one of the things that Steve and I have done recently is we've investigated the use of machine learning in discharge planning or assessing readiness for discharge in general surgery patients. And what we found is that it's actually possible to formulate a reliable measure of predicting discharge time based on a lot of the language uh, that's entered into electronic medical records. So in the future, we could potentially visualize a few system where machine learning algorithms or artificial intelligence in general is sort of infused and supplements human decision-making in the clinical arena and just allows it to become more efficient and hopefully beneficial for patient outcomes as well. I can see how that would be particularly useful with the bed restrictions with COVID and other winter illnesses. Knowing exactly when patients are going home could help us work out whether elective surgeries could still proceed. 
Yeah, I think in a way it provides a very rapid synthesis of information and then provides or has the ability to, if used correctly, to provide that synthesis of information to the humans within the healthcare system. Um, so, for example, using this discharge planning or measure of readiness for discharge uh, as an example, um, if you had a metric that sort of synthesized all the information within the electronic medical record very quickly and assessed all the timings that people were discharged and provided a predictive measure, then when you're the clinician taking care of somebody, you could actually have that synthesis of information in a number from zero to 100 and then think, okay, based on this number, which is synthesizing all the electronic information, and then along with my own individual human clinical reasoning, when should I start making my discharge planning recommendations or discharge planning decisions, for example. So I think it provides a really effective adjunct and especially in the future, if we're able to implement this in the research setting and shows that it significantly benefits patient outcomes, I think it will be a big thing for systems of care in the future. If I can ask Steve, is it possible just to take all the patient's information, their age, sex, gender, smoking factors, other, all the other aspects that you might want to consider as might be related to a particular condition, just put it into the machine learning program and work out which ones actually have an association to a particular condition? So is, can it actually analyse the data and work out which one's the actual important factors? Yeah, so there's many different types of analysis, and I think the question partially relates to clustering analyses as you know, the type of unsupervised machine learning where you can essentially provide a computer with data and see what sorts of associations it can form. I find that the majority of machine learning tasks in medicine, although I don't have data to support that it is the majority, are in that supervised category where you've got a really specific task or a specific question you're trying to find a predicted answer to. Because in some ways, machine learning performs like a clinical decision rule or a risk stratification score. So for example, you know, we all know the Ottawa ankle rules or the Chad's VAS score for atrial fibrillation. I think in many ways in medicine, machine learning in the first instance will perform similarly to those and really help with a specific decision that's being made. And just to address your question earlier about why is this relevant to the junior medical students or senior medical students and trainee medical officers and senior medical officers for that matter is that I really think this this technology is coming. Um, already in the United States, there's machine learning or artificial neural networks that have been reimbursed by Medicaid and they're being used. And really, I think that doctors need to be able to understand, if not understand the intricacies of the algorithms themselves, they need to be able to understand the limitations of these algorithms. So that when a computer says, I think that this person might have melanoma, you can say, mm, I'm not sure if this applies to my patient population. I'm not sure if this data is relevant to the patient who's in front of me. I'm not sure about how this was validated. I'm not sure if this has a high likelihood of a false positive. And then on a broader perspective, I'm not sure if this is going to benefit our healthcare system if we roll it out more broadly. And I think that it's an, it's almost inevitable, really, that this technology will come. And I think that Clinicians really need to be able to understand it, to be able to apply it effectively to best benefit their patients. 
And whilst we're on the subject of the Ottawa rules and the other Chadvas scores, etc., has anyone actually looked back at these scores and put them into machine learning programs and validated them that way to just double check they actually do work, given the fact that you actually have these neural networks and actually can run the testing programs over and over again? Yeah, it's an interesting question is how do these old scores fit into the system now? So these scores are well validated. They definitely still have a role. But analyses that either apply machine learning novel machine learning strategies to this sorts of question and this sort of problem can be very interesting and potentially beneficial. So, for example, um, the ABCD2 score for TIA risk stratification can also has been applied to, for TIA diagnosis. We used natural language processing, looking at free text descriptions of transient ischemic attack-like episodes and found that the deep learning actually outperformed the ABCD2 score. Ultimately, this requires further validation and implementation studies. But there are also studies where you take the exact same data sets and apply a novel machine learning method on the exact same inputs. And sometimes it will outperform the existing scores. But the existing scores are, you know, they're well validated. People are familiar with them. They've been shown to benefit patient care. And it doesn't mean you can rush, rush off and start using a new one until it's gone through all those same steps. Excellent. And obviously, this is a quite an expanding area. And I believe the two of you have actually set up a journal club to actually foster research in the area of South Australia. Josh, can you enlighten us on what this research and journal club involves and how you've set it up? So what we've developed is really an initiative. And it's an initiative in a way that... We seek to provide a community for medical students and also junior doctors, especially those who want to get a start in research. It really derives back to my honours year where I was in a really unique situation where I was lucky enough to be evaluating COVID when it was first coming out and evaluating the literature and the information that was being found out on COVID and how it affected surgical care. What I derive from that is really how information flow goes between societal level factors to system level factors to individual person factors as well. That got me to thinking throughout the year in that if we could harness a lot of this information flow and really use it to enhance research productivity in the people involved with the system, this could be something that just uplifts everybody and uplifts the amount of innovation uh, that could happen on a very, very large scale as well. What we aim to do from this journal club and what it essentially is a network in a physical or real life sense and also a network online, uh, mainly through social media. We seek to eliminate as many barriers as possible for people getting involved with research and sharing ideas and getting involved with potential future innovation that will benefit healthcare. And we want to do this at as large a scale as possible. In a practical sense, the Information and Surgery Journal Club is what it's called, but it involves sessions at usually about fortnightly intervals. What it involves in these sessions is usually two speakers who will give some sort of personal insight or personal expertise and also provide some teaching on idea formulation. And 
in the surgical literature, there's actually a structure towards idea formulation, and that is the ideal uh, recommendations. Pretty much what that is, a structure or an international guideline set that describes the process of taking what can very much be a very raw idea and taking that to clinical implementation on an international scale and then ongoing monitoring of that idea within clinical practice to through registries and databases. Going back to the session structure, so we have this fusion of teaching, of research undertaking, and also personal experiences from speakers of any setting at all. And we've, we've been very lucky to have had speakers ranging from the very junior medical student level up until the most some of the most senior professors in South Australia. And what this also provides, and it's not really evident from just analysing the structure, what this also provides is a community of people. And we've seen people or attendance of sessions ranging up to 70 in total. And online, the community that we have through private Facebook group for this is well over 100. And what we found that is by having this integration of ongoing teaching, ongoing communication, and essentially ongoing removal of barriers to information flow uh, between people, is that it's been an extreme boost to research productivity and essentially idea formation, especially at the junior level. So in our first, I think about six or seven sessions that we held, we were able to start a remarkable number of projects. I think the number that we actually attempted to calculate, it came out to over 50 projects arriving from those first few sessions. And and now it's gotten to the level where we haven't been keeping track, but it would be well over 80 or 90 now. And we're about, uh, I think about 10 sessions in. So what we hope in the future is that not only does this improve or boost the production of new ideas and research innovation, but it also gives people at the very junior level the confidence to undertake their own ideas. One thing that we really believe, really hope to communicate to as many people as possible is that people even uh, at the very junior level can have ideas that do improve practice. And we think it's beneficial for everybody if we not only collaborate to make those ideas happen, but also provide an environment where people can drive their own ideas to, through to fruition. Well, that's a brilliant initiative. And if someone's listening to this and wants to get involved in it, is it saying it's open to them? Uh, so it's, it's completely open at the moment, where obviously the bulk of my research has been in surgery and the bulk of Steve's research has been in neurology and stroke. Uh, but through collaboration with ourselves, Ashray Gupta is another key member in the Journal Club Initiative. Brandon Stredden is also another key member of the Journal Club Initiative. We've got various other people involved of various different disciplines and various sort of backgrounds and also varying levels of seniority. And pretty much we are open to collaborating to facilitate any project, anything on any topic that improves patient care. We're completely open to supporting and doing our best to try and make that happen in whatever form 
it does. One thing we've really found beneficial is that because of the majority of our communication is via online means, so either via email or social media, we found that it really goes through barriers of space. So people that have collaborated with us have been from all across Australia. And recently, we've been lucky enough to start reaching out to people internationally as well. But through the internet, there's really no or really minimal barriers to starting new project and starting new work. So we're completely open uh, to collaborate and to ask you, answer your question directly. This can be on any topic uh, whatsoever. So is an email address or web address to approach to, to get in contact with yourselves? Probably the most accessible way is just contacting us through our social media. So via just Josh Cavour, Steve, Stephen Backey on Facebook. I'm on Instagram as well. But also we've developed a website. Uh, so the website address for that primarily is www.researchproceed.com. And what this is, is it essentially acts as a mechanism to match people at the junior level with potential research supervisors. So to answer your question, overall, there are a variety of ways that people can get started with this, especially online. For those who are in South Australia, which is where we're based, we're also completely open to talk about this stuff in person as well. Well, that's just brilliant. They've taken this initiative. I think you've done a great job in actually trying to foster research. The two of you and the whole team should be congratulated on this approach. Thank you. We really appreciate that. One thing that Steve and I, we hope to do with this initiative and a lot of our work going forward is that we hope to benefit patient care at not only the individual sort of patient level, but also at the system and population level as well. Now, if I can start off by asking Steve, where do you think AI and machine learning is going to go? Where do you think this will be in 20 years' time from now? Mm, 10, 20 years. I think the most immediate next steps is we need clinical trials. I think that the machine learning needs to go through the same sort of rigor as any medical device or drug does in terms of having proven benefit before it's used. So I think machine learning clinical trials are really going to be picking up substantially over the next few years and moving forwards. In 10 to 20 years, I think by that time, there'll be multiple algorithms that have proven clinical benefits and they will become a part of routine workflows. I think that by that time, it will be standard practice that medical students learn about this during their training so that they can critically appraise such tools as they're developed in future and really help use them in a rational fashion to improve patient outcomes. And I think that the rate of increase will only increase. I think that you know, there's a variety of literatures around how technology advances faster as it advances. And I think that it's a very exciting time to be involved in medicine and research. And Josh, do you have any thoughts on what the future holds for the young trainee coming through and where we'll be in 20 years' time with machine learning? Firstly, I'll just piggyback on to Stephen's point about the integration of machine learning or AI in general. I think that in the future, especially in the next five to 10 years, what this will do is really change the way that information is processed within the healthcare system. I think the fusion of algorithms within the use of the electronic medical record, and of course, after only after validation through the research process and clinical trials, is it can result in a remarkable increase in efficiency. I think that this will 
in the future result in incredibly efficient and hopefully incredibly effective healthcare systems. And so really that could bolster the innovation side of things as well, because it's a sort of cascading effect where once the efficiency improves in the information processing within the system, then the information use for innovation will probably also improve in efficiency. And then you'll get an overall improvement on the methods of improvement. So that's what I hope can potentially be realized within the next five to 10 years is just a remarkably different healthcare system with regards to health information processing. Finally, do you think artificial intelligence and machine learning is going to take our jobs in the future? Or do you think there will always be the requirement for humans to help guide the process and interpret the results? Where do you think the future holds down the track? I think that it's a question that a lot of us think about a fair bit. I think that there will always be a role for humans in medicine. I think that we will always need a human touch, as it were, and that empathy that someone who's been in the field and been working with people with a certain condition for a long time can provide. And ultimately, you really need to be able to understand people's priorities and goals. And whilst I think that computers are going to get progressively better and will really help us perform that task, I don't think that we'll be replacing humans in the immediate future. Excellent. Well, it's been fantastic having you guys on Aussie Med Ed. It's been brilliant hearing about AI and ML and uh, hearing what you've been doing with it as well. Most importantly, actually, your efforts in bringing the whole of South Australia together in research, which is brilliant. And I really would like to thank you very much for coming on Aussie Med. Thank you very much, Dr. Stephen Backey and Dr. Josh Cavour. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Kevin. I'd like to thank you very much for listening to our podcast. I'd like to remind you that the information provided today is just for general medical advice and does not pertain to one particular medical condition or one way of treating a particular condition. If you have any concerns about information raised today, please do not hesitate to contact your general practitioner for further information. We hope you've enjoyed the podcast and please don't hesitate to give us a like or tell your friends about it or give us a positive review. We look forward to presenting another podcast to you in the near future on a different topic. Until then, stay safe. Thank you very much.